Romans chapter 5, we left off with just the last two verses. You guys remember? Paul comparing and contrasting these two men, Adam and Jesus. Adam's rebellion and Jesus' reconciliation. Right? Adam introduced sin into our previously perfect world. Thanks a lot, Adam. And he brought with him then, he brought sin into the home of the Adams family. Sorry. Okay, I can make it worse. How about this? Think of it as the Adam bomb. It's true, right? Worse than Hiroshima, worse than Nagasaki, Adam's one act was the flashpoint that radiated outward in history and killed us all. But where Adam's bomb, B-O-M-B, killed us, there's also Jesus' bomb, B-A-L-M, that heals us. The consequences of Adam's bomb were global. The offer of Jesus' bomb is also global. Verses 18 and 19 is a nice summary. Let's just look at that. It's a pretty comprehensive summary of what Paul's been getting at. Therefore, verse 18, As through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, that would be the cross, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Justification. Some of you have been hearing that word very often. Justified. Just as if I'd never sinned, right? Adam introduces this horrific situation into all of humanity. Nobody can avoid it. But Jesus offers the chance to be just as if I'd never sinned. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Um, By birth, then we talked about our family tree. Each one of us traces back to Adam, right? To this tree of rebellion. But if you are here tonight and you are a Christian, you have become born again. Your second birth now traces you back to the family tree of Jesus, which is the cross, right? Instead of rebellion, now it's reconciliation that you're a part of. Adam's tree left us condemned. Jesus' tree leaves us justified. Okay, that brings us now to where we left off. Chapter 5, verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Okay, I need you guys to have your thinking caps on here. You may remember on Sunday, verses 13 and 14. you remember that where Paul interrupted himself? And I said, that makes me feel better because I do that all the time. Look at verse 12, and we'll get a running start, and you'll see the interruption in verse 13 and 14. Paul, again, is setting up Adam's rebellion and its global consequences, okay? Watch how he takes a side trip in verse 13. Therefore, verse 12, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, side trip, verse 13, for until the law sin was in the world, but Sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression, remember that word, of Adam. Okay, Paul says, look, we know that Adam sinned against a direct order, right? 
A transgression is when you sin against a, a direct order, when you cross a line in the sand. We know that Adam was told, you can eat of any tree of the garden, but not this one. So what did he do? He ate of that one. He transgressed, okay? Transgression is crossing a line in the sand, if you will. Okay, verse uh, 14 says, look, we know that Moses, when he brought the law, he brought a whole bunch of lines in the sand to cross. So Adam transgressed. Everybody after Moses transgressed. What about the people in between Adam and Moses? Well, verses 13 and 14, Paul was basically getting at this. Technically, they're not transgressors, but they are sinners. And you know how we know? Because they all died. There's a difference between transgression and sin. Let me give you an example. Technically, God never said to Cain, don't kill your brother. So he didn't transgress. But we know he sinned. Okay? Uh, let's say you go to uh, Yellowstone National Park and you feed a bear a stick of dynamite. That would probably be a sin, but technically they may not have a law that says don't feed the bear dynamite. You show up the next summer, all of a sudden there's a law, oh, don't feed the bear's dynamite. Here's the point. It's still wrong, but now it's undeniable. It's obviously wrong. Verse 20, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Okay? Paul talks about this some in Galatians too. He says, look, this, the law is like a schoolmaster that brings us to Christ. The, the Ten Commandments, the law of God is the ruler by which you compare yourself that shows you what a miserable wretch you are, that you need Christ. And wherever the law is introduced to sinful humans, if we're honest, our sin becomes obvious. And it, in verse 20 says, it abounds. Everywhere you look, wow, I didn't realize what a sinner I am. It abounds, and actually that's a good thing. That's where God wants us, in a place of honest humility. Turn with me to Nehemiah 8. I just want to show you one example. Nehemiah 8, you guys there? Verse 8. Okay. Got it? So they read distinctly from the book in, it says, the law of God. And they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. Okay, so they've opened the book. This is the first time they've even known about the law. Um, in, in Nehemiah, okay? It's been lost for, for quite some time. Verse 9, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. It says, For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. They didn't weep until they understood. The law made their sin, even though they were already sinners. The law... Help them to understand that their sin abounded. Okay, now turn back to Romans chapter 5. See, the law brings in this standard and we mourn. And then the Lord comes in as a savior. That's why, y'all remember, when we went through Romans chapter 3, 1, one 2, and 3, it was, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. And when we got to chapter 3, verse 21, it was, oh, it was awesome because God had shown us previously, there's not one of you righteous. No, not one. The law brings in the standard, but then God says, look, I found a way apart from the law to redeem you. Verse 20, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. 
Here's the deal. When you honestly try to measure yourself with God's standard, it's like you open up a can of worms and you can't get the lid back on. Everywhere you turn, your sin abounds. Stuff you didn't even know was sin starts to become clear to you. Oh, that's a sin too? But thanks be to God, Paul says, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Where Paul's going here is saying, look, Jesus' abundant sacrifice, the thing that Jesus did at his tree more than covers the thing that Adam did at his tree. Jesus' abundant sacrifice overrules your abundant sin. God's massive grace overrules Adam's mass grave. That's what it says to close out chapter 5, verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Y'all, I hope you get this. I hope you've or gotten it over the last few weeks. Chapter 5 ends with tremendous hope for the hopeless sinner. Maybe that's you tonight. You feel like you have actually found the end of God's grace. Like you've strayed just a bit too far. You've sinned too much. You've broken too many promises to Him. Your sin abounds. Your sin surrounds you. It mocks you. Well, verse 20 says, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Verse 21 says, look, where death had reigned because your sin put death on the throne, now grace reigns. It gives us life in Jesus. No one in this room who is still breathing has found the end of God's patience, His goodness toward you. Even me, breaking my own rule, I have not found the end of God's patience with me, His graciousness. If you come to Him tonight, no matter what your state, if you come and you Ask Him for forgiveness. You turn from your sin. You will still find grace on the throne. Okay? So the chapter of over verse, the summary over chapter 5 would be this Jesus overrules sin's penalty. Okay? But is that all? Is that the end of the story? Actually, that's Paul's question, chapter 6, verse 1. Well, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? See, Paul asks the question that's out loud that some are thinking. Let me try to put it in different terms. Um, If God has found a way to make me justified, that is just as if I'd never sinned, And if it's true that as much as my sin abounds, that his grace abounds more, well then, I got a pretty sweet arrangement going on here. Right? I sin, God makes me clean. I sin, God makes me clean. I sin, God makes me just as if I'd never sinned. Wow, God, I'll do my job, you do your job. This works out pretty well. I sin, you forgive. 
Matter of fact, God, if my sin gives your graciousness a chance to shine, then why not be a grade A sinner? You can thank me later, God. See, that's some of what people were accusing Paul. And that's whenever you actually preach grace, which is in the Bible, this is what you'll be accused of. Of saying that somehow God winks at sin. Or that it's okay to sin. I think I've shared it with you before. This, this philosophy, this... Um, and, and by the way, um, I think it was Rasputin. Actually, he took this to the nth degree. He really... He preached, I'm going to sin and God's going to forgive me. Okay? This philosophy is like this t-shirt that you may have seen, right? I don't have a drinking problem. I drink. I get drunk. I fall down. I throw up. No problem. That's the way people think sometimes grace is interpreted. Let me ask you, is that, that the, the real Christian life? Is that where life where the real Christian life just stops. So if we were to just end at chapter 5, that's what you might think. Uh, okay, so I just sin and he forgives, and I sin and he forgives. But think about how sad that would be if that were true. If that were true, then this is the way the Christian life would look. We sin, powerless to change. He forgives and apparently powerless to change us. Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Yeah, I, I love the timing of this. Again, over the last couple of weeks, folks have raised their hand to receive Christ. The last couple of Sundays, right? Think about the timing of chapter 6, verse 1. This is critical. It is critical to the real Christian life. Think about this. How you answer Paul's rhetorical question in verse 1 is the difference between enduring the, quote, Christian life and enjoying the real Christian life. It's the difference between a bummer Christian life and abundant Christian life. I'll ask you if you've seen the sticker. I don't want to embarrass you if you maybe have it on your car. It's not a bad sticker, but it's incomplete. Here it is. You ever seen the bumper sticker? Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. It's true. We, we know the first part is true. We aren't perfect. I mean, come on. I know that. We prove that every day. But what about the second part? Is it true that the only difference between us and the world is that we're forgiven? Shouldn't there be some other difference? Is the only difference between you and the unbelievers around you that you are forgiven? Or is there included with your life with Christ power to become better than you were? Are you a new creation or are you the old creation just forgiven? See, I, I, I was going to say I'm anxious to see how Paul answers the question, but I've read ahead so I know how he answers it. <laughs> Let me put it this way. How sad would it be if he were to say, what now then? Do we just keep on sinning? And he goes, I guess so. <laughs> How sad would that be? Thankfully, that's not his answer. Look at verse 2. He says, certainly not. In the Greek, it's very, very emphatic. 
Uh, it would be like him saying, never let it be spoken. Or him saying, are you serious? <laughs> or get real. Don't be stupid. Or in southern speak, hush your mouth. <laughs> See, this is awesome news when you think about this. Think about what this means. Just certainly not. What this means is then that Jesus, listen, not only overrules sin's penalty for us, but this means that Jesus also overcomes sin's power in us. You see the huge difference? I mean, yes, we'd be grateful if he just overcame the penalty, but we'd be miserable for the rest of between now and heaven. But what this says is, you don't have to be powerless before that sin. Okay? This is the difference between an enduring, enduring a life of failure and enjoying a life of victory. There is some way that he has figured out for us to overcome sin. Now, what's the secret? We're going to find out, I think, in verses 2 through 14. How, how can you have victory over sin that supposedly every Christian is supposed to have? Unfortunately, I think it, you could call this a well-kept secret because many people don't know. But how can you have this victory? Um, have you guys ever seen the, the clip of Bob Newhart spoofing his own show where he's a very cheap, quick psychologist? And this lady comes in and she has all these fears, all these destructive habits. She looks to, to Bob Newhart for help and he says, okay, here comes my advice. It's very short. Are you ready? Stop it. She says, well, but I have this fear. Stop it. And he just goes on saying, stop it. No, no, no. Paul's therapy, listen, is a completely different no. It's K-N-O-W. No, no, no. Paul reminds us, look, it all starts in your mind. Look at verse 3, and you'll see that he says, here's something you need to know. Verse 6, he says, we know. Verse 9, oh, and you need to know this. We see this with Paul quite a bit. Our minds are the place where it all starts. The, the difference between enduring a life of failure, morally, and enjoying a life of victory, believe it or not, Paul says, does not start with you um, with your will, but with your mind, beginning to understand what exactly God has already done in your life. Okay, um, let me put it this way: if if it was more like Bob Newhart's philosophy, verse two would read this way. Certainly not. Now suck it up and pull it together, man. But Paul does not say that. He says, "No, let me tell you something. You need to know some things." Verse one. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Interesting. Paul didn't go any of the direction that I think we expected him to. We expected him to, again, say, certainly not. That's, that's stupid. Now, let's talk about how you make this happen. But he, he approaches it from kind of, at least for at first glance, you're, you're like, wow, he just... He just spoke something as if it was something he's, he knows and that we should have already known. Do you see that? He says, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? It's like Paul introduced a game-changing concept into our conversation, and then he looks in our eyes and, and we're going, what? And so he says, okay, verse 3, 
Or, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Paul says, look, if you didn't know this before, know it now. From this point forward, understand this spiritual fact. And it's a fact. Number one, fact number one that you need to know. You died in Christ. Now, verse 3 and 4, you're going to see, are, they're very informative for us about water baptism. But Paul's main thrust here is really, whether, whether you've been baptized in water or not, his main thrust here is this. You need to know this. You, Christian, died. That day that you gave your life to Jesus, you died that day. Th- this should help. You see the word baptize? It literally means to immerse, to overwhelm. Okay? It says we were immersed in Jesus. Verse 3. Or do you not know that as many of us were immersed into Christ Jesus, were immersed into his death? Maybe this will make sense. Uh, remember, water baptism is just an outward sign of what God has already done in you, right? On the day you got saved, whether it was five days ago, five years ago, five decades ago, you were immersed in Jesus. And you can trace that fact back to, uh, just, just as you can trace your DNA back to Adam, you can trace your spiritual DNA Back to Jesus, right? You were immersed in him. And it says, when he died at the cross, guess where you were? At the cross. Now think about the implications of that. They are wonderful. Look at verse 4. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. The implication follows that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. Look at verse 5. For if we have been united, immersed, united together in the likeness of his death, implication follows, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Paul says, number one, you need to know this. You died in Christ. You were immersed in him. Now, when you start to unravel that, we don't have time completely tonight, but think about everything that you learned on Easter morning about uh, Jesus' victory over sin. That means that somehow that applies to you. Y'all, the implications are are so far-reaching that the Christian life is not one of defeat and forgiveness. Defeat and forgiveness. Defeat and forgiveness. Some of you are like, well, that sounds like my life. It's not the way the Christian life is supposed to be. If water baptism is a picture of what Jesus has already done, if we were to tailor our water baptism to that false reality, defeat, forgiveness, defeat, forgiveness, if I were to baptize you, I would, instead of dunking you and bringing you back up, I would dunk you and wait for the thrashing to stop. <laughs> right? Because you, you never get back up. You, you just... I'm, I'm, I'm rotten. I'm, I'm a rotten, terrible sinner. And I've, I've never gotten better in, in any of these areas. See, number one, you need to understand. I'm not sure if I can relay it as well as I, I'd like to tonight. But you need to understand this. I died in Christ. You need to maybe say that to yourself. I died 
in Christ. If you've given your life to him, it's a fact. Okay, number two, you need to know this. That death emancipated you. You are emancipated by that death that you suffered in Christ. Verse 6 says, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. It says the old man was crucified. Old man, that doesn't mean your dad or your husband. No, he's referring to the old you. The, the BC you. You before you gave your life to Christ. Knowing this, that your old man, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with. Literally, it actually means rendered inoperative. That we should no longer be slaves of sin. It says, for he who has died has been freed from sin. You see, I hope, hopefully you're seeing, for Paul, again, it's, isn't it striking? He doesn't say, look, do this, do this, do this, do this. As far as how you can overcome sin. No, he says, think this, think this, know this, understand this. He says, for he who has been died, and it's a fact, is free from sin. The second thing Paul wants you to know is that when you died in Christ, sin lost its hold on you. When you died in Christ, sin lost its hold on you. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, it doesn't feel that way. Well, we're going to see later on in the chapter, whoever you, you obey starts to seem like your master, right? But when you died in Christ, legally, sin lost its grip, its hold upon you. Think about this. You used to have no choice but to sin. Before you were saved, the master called and said, drink this. And you did. You had to. He said, eat this. You, you did, you had to. He said, look at this. You did because you had to. He said, do this, shoot this, shout this, worry about this, complain about this. And you jumped because he said you had to. You had no choice. You were a slave to sin. But that day, Paul says, you became immersed in Jesus. He says, you died. And when you died, your master, he lost control of you. He, he lost the ability to force you to do what he wants you to do. Ask any slave master how they, if they can force a dead slave to do something. At best, it's weekend at Bernie's, right? Paul says, look, the Christian life is more than just overruling sin's penalty in your life. The Christian life is about Jesus overcoming sin's power in your life. And the way that it happens is by knowing, number one, you're dead in Christ. Number two, you are dead to sin. And number three, you are alive to God. Verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Paul says, the third thing you need to know. Just like Jesus, you died once to sin. Now, sin and death are behind you. Right? Sin and death are behind Jesus, right? As a Christian, sin and death are behind you. You look forward to a life of serving not your old master, sin, but your new master, God. You are dead to sin 
alive to God. Now, what's that mean? I think Paul has taken his, he says, look, take your cues from Jesus' death and his resurrection, okay? Again, learn from the Easter story and apply that because you were in Christ then. For in reality, that was your death, your resurrection. Verse 9, it says, knowing that Christ, let's, let's look at him as this example, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. Let me see if I can make this pop for you. If you're a Christian, how many of you believe that Jesus will return for his church? Okay, hopefully everyone. Are you concerned at all that Jesus is worried? What if I go back and they catch me and they crucify me all over again? No, it's ridiculous. Why? Because he conquered the grave once. We know it's settled. It's a settled fact that death has no power, no dominion over Jesus. Verse 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Message, look, it's settled. There's no struggling on Jesus' part. Jesus, there's no nail-biting. No, him not, there's no time when he goes, man, I hope that death doesn't overpower me. It's conquered, it's done, it's settled. Now watch verse 11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says, as surely as Jesus died once, he's now free from the power of sin and death. He's alive to God, so you have died once. True? If you're a Christian, I hope I just proved to you, you died once. You have died once, so then it follows that you are free from the power of sin, and you are alive to God. That Sin has no dominion over you. The devil, you've probably, some of you have even said it over the last few months, the devil made me do it. He can't. He can't make you do anything. You are free from the power of sin and alive to God. So why do I sin? Because you want to. You are free from the power of sin. You are alive to God. Here's the deal. You've probably noticed this. The devil is not too happy about this development. I don't know if you have noticed, but the devil is not really the type to give up too easily. I don't know, maybe your experience is different than mine. Maybe the devil said for you, oh yeah, you've accepted Jesus, bummer for me, good for you, you know. I'm, a bu- I'm bummed out, but what's fair is fair, good luck under your new management. No? No one had that? Okay, I didn't think so. No, you died to sin But the devil is going to pull out all of the stops to try to bring that corpse back to life. Right? It's like Weekend at Bernie's in 3D, IMAX, since around. Okay? The fact is, though, that you have been emancipated. You have been set free. This is a great illustration. I wasn't there and I wasn't actually even able to to read the history books, but what I understand is that during the time of Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, there was a time of real confusion because the law was set. Legally, these slaves were free. 
But so many of them, well, where do I go? What do I do? Uh, I I guess I could try to walk out the the gate. The master says, you're not going anywhere. I don't care what he says. You're still mine. Well, now the slave has to decide, who do I believe? You get it? Lincoln said he had set them free. They, many of them believed their masters who said, no, you're not free. You'll do what I say. Listen, that is why verse 11 is critical. Paul says, look, the way to victory is not no, no, no. Don't do that. Don't do that. No, don't do that. It's no, this. You are dead in Christ. No, this. You are dead to sin. No, this. You are alive to God. And then comes that moment of truth. Verse 11, to reckon. That's a step beyond no, y'all. Reckon. It's actually a familiar word, those of you who've been with us in, in Romans. It's logizomai. It means to account. So what, he, what he's saying is now, now we've moved out of just the realm of knowledge. Now we're in the, the realm of faith. Who do you believe? Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You get what he's saying? God says you're free. God says you don't have to sin. Now, we know that we are going to sin, but I can tell you this, that that consistent, seemingly impossible sin to overcome, that continual sin that keeps coming back, that you're saying, I tried, I tried, I tried, I, I tried, and... I just give up. It really is my master. God says, no, it's not. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says, victory will come when you hang this sign up over yourself. Dead to sin. Victory will come when you understand that you owe sin nothing. That that sin that is so attractive to you, that sin that you feel like you've you've had a relationship with for years and years and years. Victory will come when you realize you owe that sin nothing. It can't make you do anything. It has no power over you. And literally, it has no history with you in terms of uh, spiritual things. Though your master might come calling, your former master, saying the exact same things he's always said, Drink this, shoot this, shout this, worry this, look at this. He can't make you do anything. You are dead to him. You guys remember in the Jewish culture, if, if you were to, to be converted, your father would say, he's dead to me. Means we have no relationship. See, that is how your old master is to you or you are to him. You are dead to sin. On the other hand, you are not only dead to sin, you are alive to God. That means you do owe God. He does have power over you. He does have a history with you that he bought you with his perfect blood. Verse 12, 
Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. You get it? Paul says, I don't, I don't know if this is the, the best way to summarize it, but you are under new management and you need to reckon yourself that way you need to turn a deaf ear to sin you need to listen to jesus you need to turn a blind eye to sin these are the members of your body you need to focus on jesus when the old master comes blustering his old threats and promises you need to say to him i'm sorry who are you I have no record of a debt to you or a dependence upon you or a fellowship with you. I don't know who you are. You must be referring to the old me. I need to tell you, he's dead. The new me only answers to God in Christ Jesus. Victory is then found not in determination and reformation. And this is where we, we, we make the fatal mistake. We go, okay. From this point forward, I'm going to be determined, be determined to reform. No, victory is not in determination and reformation. Victory is in death and resurrection. Not in no, 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 I won't do that, but in no, 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 I'm dead in Christ. That death has freed me. I'm alive to God. And finally, reckoning, that is deciding once and for all, agreeing with God that what he says is true, that you really are free from sin. He said it's true. You need to reckon it true and behave accordingly.